Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. The art history Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Natalie. I'm Jenny, and we are the Art History Babes. We are. We are the Art History Babes. (laughs) Hey, hey, hey. Hey, we're here. We're on YouTube for this one. So Mm. that's fun. Look at our faces. Look at our faces. Look at our bookshelves where our book (laughs) is prominent in each bookshelf. Right there, baby. (laughs) We know how to (laughs) self-promote. And if you haven't, pick up your copy of the Honest Art Dictionary. Get it. Get it. (laughs) Get it. Get it. Oh, also real quick, I'll do a little little merch promo. Yes. Look at that tote. My Apollo tote. Yes. Yeah. That along with many other new offerings over at arthistorybabes.com slash merchandise. Go check I'm it out. Run across the room and grab my art beanie, but then my toes touch the cold tile, and nope, no, <laughs> I'm not moving. You I'll gotta throw, get some uh, socks on those those little dogs. I know. Pop. Uh, I'll just pop a picture of the beanie up on screen. Nice. You know the, the magic of video editing. It's really? wild. My oh, toes yeah. are so happy. All right. So today we have. An episode that I'm I'm very excited about. I mm-hmm. there's there's just a lot to discuss and we often discuss a lot of just like big, lofty, dreamy ideas concerning art, you know, like we like to go deep into all the little things we love about different artists and that's all great and wonderful. But today we're talking about a way in which design plays a very tangible, very practical role in society and also pretty harmful in some examples. So this is a very pointed topic. It is uh, very social, political to some extent 
And I, I'm excited to, to get into it because I think that's also like a big question and, and something a lot of artists and art historians deal with is like, am I really making an impact in society and things like this? And this is, this is such an example of how design very much impacts society in, yeah. a, in a basic day-to-day kind of way. So absolutely. Today we are talking about hostile architecture and that's h-o-s-t-i-l-e <laughs> not, <laughs> not hostile <laughs> like the cheap hotel that you stay at when you're gallivanting around europe not that mm, style right. as in uh angry and aggressive, aggressive. yeah <laughs> So hostile architecture is an urban design strategy that uses elements of the built environment to purposefully guide or restrict behavior in order to prevent crime and maintain order. So hostile architecture can refer to anything within a public space that is intentionally designed to control or restrict the public. Other names for hostile architecture include defensive design, defensive architecture, exclusionary architecture, and even, I heard this one today, evil architecture. Oh. Which is a bit much. (laughs) A bit much. Yeah, maybe, maybe it works for more extreme cases, but it's a lot to put on architecture. It is. I I feel like hostile is perfect because defensive, defensive is like, oh, you live in a castle and you have turrets and a moat to protect yourself from invaders like that's what that evokes to me where it's like come on that's none of this shit is defensive in that kind of yeah term but evil is a a bit of a stretch yeah i have i have the perfect defensive architecture example because when i was talking to uh sweet Ange about this earlier she was saying she was like oh you like the way that dan puts that metal around the trees to stop the squirrels from eating the apples (laughs) and i was like (laughs) Not, not quite. <laughs> I mean, Kinda. that's maybe like a very, as I said, I was like, that's like a very light example of this. Like it's in the same loose category. So that, I, that feels more defensive. You're defending your fruit. You're defending your crop. Uh, right. We can maybe throw, uh, what are they called? Scarecrows in the mix with <laughs> that. defensive architecture. And there is some crossover with, um, like, I did see some examples of, like, yeah, actual statues that are meant to Mm -hmm. be hostile, be aggressive, Mm -hmm. you know, ward off certain people. So that is a real thing. I I didn't make the scarecrow connection, but I like that. (laughs) I like like the scarecrow. I do think I would maybe classify Angie's example, though, as hostile architecture. I think there are more squirrels. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, and there are plenty of examples of urban hostile architecture that is hostile to animals. So, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. so I think that that can fall into what we're talking about today. It really is a very wide umbrella, uh, that a lot of things can fall under. Yeah. Some of them I think are more hostile, more aggressive than others. There's definitely a 
spectrum and also some of these things that do fall under the umbrella, I I think do provide a great deal of benefit. For example, street lamps are technically a form of hostile architecture as they were designed to illuminate streets as a way to prevent crime and maintain order. And personally, I'm a fan of street lamps lamps Mm -hmm. i'm i like that they exist you know so there are some examples that are you know still providing or still trying to to control in some way that are maybe a little less harmful to individuals or a little less aggressive but there are many examples of hostile architecture that are quite ubiquitous in urban environments whose primary intention is pretty problematic and unnecessarily hostile towards certain populations. Mm-hmm. So some big examples, I think this is this is at least the first one that pops into my mind when I think about this is public benches. I feel like this gets talked about a lot in this discussion of hostile architecture, public benches are often designed to include some type of barrier that will prevent a person from lying down. This is very common pretty much everywhere at this point. This can be a bar or a block in the middle of the bench. It can also be separating the bench in the middle to create discomfort. There are lots of different ways people have, you know, messed with benches to make them uncomfortable to some degree. And more recently, we started to see slanted public benches, which aren't even benches. Like that's not even those are crazy. It's like a wall (laughs) sit. It's a supported wall sit, which who wants that? No one, not a single person. (laughs) And you look at the images of those and it's like, what is this? Like a torture device from outer space? Like, what yes (laughs) yeah there you can't even sit on them which is very useless like I do not understand the point of even constructing these things personally like it it really provides no benefit for anyone involved (laughs) the slanted bench is is a perfect example because the intention of the design is to prevent people from fully sitting down from sleeping or sticking around long. That's what all of these these different design elements on these benches is trying to do. It's basically saying like, you can't stay here. In other words, right. like sending a message, you're not welcome you're here. You're not welcome. Do not, yeah. do not get comfortable, mm-hmm. which is interesting since public spaces are supposed to be for the public. Hey. Literally <laughs> supposed to be like a resting spot it's uh, for public use (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah so obviously these benches create a lot of problems for people who are homeless um someone who may be just stranded somewhere or a person who is extremely exhausted like i thought immediately of just personal experiences i have definitely slept on several airport floors, like on yeah. multiple occasions. Like, yes. Yeah. I've slept in an airport with you and in a very uncomfortable spot because of those bars, because they do the same exact thing in airports. Mm-hmm. So even for, you know, probably many of us who, many of you who are listening now, us included, we have not had to sleep in public spaces many times in our life. But when it does come up, 
how infuriating and imagine having to deal with that every goddamn day of your life like not only would you feel tired and just not supported but also just so unwelcome and that that's what's so awful is just it's such a strong message that you're not welcome yeah this isn't your space you you do not belong here like yeah it was just a pretty just like negative ugly message to send always anytime you know yeah (laughs) also these benches particularly the slanted ones are also ableist as there are a great many people who rely on having a place to rest while they're out and about like it's yes actually necessary and needed and they're forced into these situations where they can't stay for long or yeah with the slanted the slanted bench doesn't provide anything as we discussed so they're not getting like the rest that they may need so yeah it's just it's really creating the the entire intention is creating discomfort like that is the purpose they're designed that way to create discomfort like just think about like decorating your home or like how you want like your home to be do you think to yourself i don't want anyone getting too comfortable here like some people want- do some people do <laughs> but it's it's oh it's such a weird thing but it's truly there are people who i mean and yeah to all varying spectrums like i don't i don't think it's you know weird to not want people to wear shoes in your home but if you're not wanting people to sit on your couch that gets weird and there are rooms that like full rooms that people have that are not that are never used yeah yeah Yeah, I I don't know the that just just reeks of an unhealthy level of uh, control to me that just that's Mm. very (laughs) I don't know. It's an interesting way to look at the world if you're actively wanting to create spaces where people are uncomfortable or unhappy, you know, and I think that that's something we need to think about throughout this entire episode. The attitude that has led to this being such a common practice yeah, is really everywhere at this point all major urban areas in recent years and and it just keeps multiplying really so Mm -hmm. Mm um yeah it's it's a complicated mindset I feel like or it's um not even complicated it's just you've already got a defense defensive is the right word like a Mm -hmm. defensive mindset to yeah space and to community (laughs) yeah yeah and that's and that's what's being um what's manifesting here really quickly just sorry before we leave the bench thing just because i feel like it's a little tangential is have you guys heard of the seats that they have for students that you have to balance that you're not fully like grounded to the ground that you have to balance my sister went to a school for a little while that had that and that it was like that among other compounding things that read as you know more like communal but then when you really looked at it it was very controlling um so those were were chairs like in the classroom imagine yeah imagine like a stool seat but then on like one peg 
So yeah. students are sitting, but they're having to balance. And the idea is oh. basically the, the concept is that comfortability leads to some sort of like disengagement or if you're comfortable, you're not paying attention. It's like, you know, those professors you had in college who would keep the classroom too cold because they didn't <laughs> want people getting tired and they like wanted you to be awake. So they would freeze you. And it's mm-hmm. like, that is the route you're going to take. How about be interesting? Like, yeah, I hate everything about that. I like that is the, yeah. but it's such a mindset it's a very uh prevalent mindset that people keep upholding Mm -hmm. that is the antithesis of how I feel about education like I my favorite thing in the world I still think about it I still like I still get warm fuzzy feelings about how much I loved in undergrad like I loved going to my art history lectures like I loved getting in especially like in the winter and shit like getting in my like cozy clothes like mm-hmm. wearing my coziest gear maybe <laughs> making like a, a hot chocolate put some like peppermint schnapps in there nice head classic. to <laughs> classic <laughs> head to my lecture hall just get all like cozy in the chair and just and listen and learn about mm-hmm. art it was the best. Mm-hmm. It was the best. Like I had such a good time. Was, I feel like that says a lot about me as a person. <laughs> but, but like it was I relate. It was a wonderful experience, you know, and there's so much already about academia that is intentionally more difficult than it needs to be. I could go on for hours about that. There is already so much about creating a unnecessarily competitive environment and barriers man yeah just creating barriers barriers. and to take away basic human comforts because you think it's going to make someone a better student it's just going to make people hate what you're teaching it's just going to make people like hate learning that thing like if I have mental associations with being unbelievably uncomfortable with whatever I'm supposed to be learning, like biology, I'm not going to want to keep learning biology. Also, I mean, people's brains work different, but like we all have different levels of like how we focus. And for someone who has like ADHD or something along those lines, imagine trying to focus on what a teacher is saying while you're trying to balance your. That's what I'm saying. The first time I heard it, I was like, that sounds so counterintuitive to how I am. Like, I mean, sometimes I would be like not knowing like how to sit in a normal chair because I do think that they make chairs in schools intentionally uncomfortable. I think they do that for sure. At least at schools I've been at. Um, <laughs> there's definitely no effort made to make them no, comfortable. None at all. So I can at <laughs> yeah, least say that. None, none <laughs> at, at the minimum. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's that's. It's gross. Mm. I hate that. Uh, (laughs) I'm mad about that. I'm going to personally write a letter to your sister's old school. (laughs) (laughs) I'll get the name from her and I'll get back to you. (laughs) Yeah, that's fucked up. But that's that's, fucking weird. That sounds like, honestly, I'd put that I'd put that in the realm of hostile architecture. It's a little bit Mm -hmm. different aim, but it still feels pretty aggressive to me. Yeah, it's still like designing something with the intent to control or Mm -hmm or cultivate some kind of reaction totally that's not 
like, oh, I'm designing this with the intent of like people just being like having like a multi-sensory experience and I want people to like feel included and involved, but it's like, mm, no, <laughs> especially, no, 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 <laughs> especially with underage people, their kids, yes, like children, she was on. young, like this is, this is, I mean, Gross. she must have been under 10 when this Oof. when she was at the school That's and yeah awful. i get it kids like to fidget but there's a different between difference between fidgeting maybe having something to play with your hands and yeah. having to balance your whole body also yeah. fidgeting is is a way it doesn't to... mean you're not paying attention no it's so normal <laughs> fidgeting is part of con- like as part of regulating your nervous system like mm-hmm. fidget fidgeting is actually very helpful and normal for a lot of people yeah like, it's not a bad thing at right. all my like, fingernail picking a... habit really appreciates you saying that <laughs> it's real though i mean because yeah. like i have i have like a swivel desk chair and i'm literally moving in it but I'm very engaged in this conversation. So. No, this this idea that if you're not like super focused and like so stupid, it's it's so false. Because also you can be super attentive, super focused, or look that way and be mm-hmm. in another fucking world. Yeah, <laughs> like, I've I've done that. I, oh yeah, Thousands totally of all times. the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, like I will start listening to someone when they when they say that when everything that they say starts with everyone learns differently, but, and then, and then I'll listen. If, if it doesn't start with that, I don't care. Cause I'm <laughs> sick of like overgeneralizations of yeah. just acting like it's just uh, militant <laughs> approaches to education. One of the things that make my blood boil for yeah. sure. <laughs> like not cool, <laughs> not okay. Um, We've all worked through those issues. <laughs> right. <laughs> That were thrust upon us. All right, bringing it back to the the more focused topic of hostile architecture in urban spaces. Another really common example is metal spikes. Incorporation of spikes into architecture is very popular, and they come in a variety of materials. Like I've seen some that are like rubber, some that are you know built into whatever kind of material. But in plenty of situations, actual metal spikes are incorporated into public spaces. Wild. And like you'll see instances where they're metal spikes with like dulled points where they think that's like somehow <laughs> better. Like, oh, don't worry. We, we dulled they, the tips. What if they, they put, can't like, actually <laughs> impale yourself on it. It'll just leave a gnarly bruise. What if they just put like little smiley faces on the tips of the points? <laughs> Get real. Get Not real. mean. Yeah. <laughs> See, it's nice. <laughs> yeah, pretty damn aggressive. These spikes can be added to windowsills and corners of uh, buildings to prevent people from leaning on them or sitting on them or from nestling into corners, which can be a bit of a haven for people who are homeless during inclement weather. They make these corners very unoccupiable using things such as metal spikes, metal bars, uh, filling in corners with different things. So the corner no longer exists as a space. And then there's this example I found of metal spikes. This is from a CNN article from 2017. The debate is hostile architecture designing people and nature out of cities, question mark. 
And I have a, an image here of metal spikes, like long ass metal <laughs> spikes, like they're fucking long covering mm -hmm. the branches of a tree that was taken in a wealthy residential suburb in England. And their purse, their purpose is to prevent birds from perching on the branches and defecating on the cars below. Wild. Get a garage. <laughs> Get a garage and leave the trees alone. It's so, you know, and, yeah, the entire branch is just covered in these long metal spikes. Because, like, a bird would straight up impale itself. Yes. Landing yes. on those easily. And, you know, I get it. Having bird shit on your car can be frustrating. But, hey, it happens and you can take it off. Welcome the to car. life. It's not, it's not <laughs> permanent. If it's the worst thing that happens in your day, cool. Like, just take also, it and move on. It's such a good example of, I'm actually reading this really great book right now that is, it's about a lot of different things, but it does focus on like eco-spirituality, like eco-based mm. spirituality and things like that. And so there's a lot of talking about the interconnectedness of all things and the interconnectedness uh, you have with your environment and mm -hmm. exploring that as a spiritual thing and um, basically giving time and praise and concern and understanding to the fact that there's a lot more going on on this earth than just humans. Like, right. Like, right. There's <laughs> a lot of other things going on and we should be respectful of them. And we also being an active being on this planet are going to interact with those things. Mm -hmm. This is an example. I'm a human being with a car. A bird will probably poop on it. Right. It's fine. Like, yeah. It's not a, that is not a reason to impale a fucking bird in its natural habitat. It's no. not. It's not. And it's, it's for the most, what's the word? Um, vapid of Good reasons word. of mm -hmm. just not wanting people to have shit on their car. When yep. you drive a car long enough there's going to be shit on it. <laughs> Just like you drive a car for a certain amount of bug guts on it. Exactly. It's That's what I'm it. saying. The car is going to get dirty one way or another. Yeah. So you solved one source. Yeah. Like also hostile architecture is employed to deter skateboarding, littering, loitering, and public urination. Mm -hmm. San Francisco, the birthplace of street skateboarding was also the first city to design solutions such as pig ears, which are metal flanges added to the corner edges of pavements and low walls to deter skateboarders. Mm -hmm. So the skateboarding thing is actually very important in this discussion because totally. it's um, basically just another example of being exclusionary of a very specific population. Like we right. want this area to be safe and habitable for families, but not these skateboarding street youths, you know? Right, like, right. Because um, there's like that assumption that they're making in that way that like skateboarders are youthful hooligans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I, I even read some instances where certain places had auditory like alarms that were at a pitched frequency that only people of a certain age could hear so like teenagers it'd be like eh, and no one else would hear it. I'm like wow 
Wow. Uh, that's um, crazy to me that that exists. <laughs> I know. And there, and there are other instances where places have implemented like hostile systems beyond just architecture. Like there was a 7-Eleven in Portland that would like sound a high pitched alarm at certain times to prevent homeless people from resting or gathering around the 7-Eleven. So like sound is a whole nother thing, but mm-hmm. yeah, like with skateboarding, it's like that association of like, this space is not for that because of like, these are the people, yeah. Yeah. these they- are the people that skate and yeah. they are undesirable and they are not welcome yeah. here. Exactly. Exactly. There's a lot of hostility toward the skateboarding community at large. Mm-hmm. I I never noticed it until dating someone who is a skateboarder and yeah it's it's kind of jarring the way that people can get so triggered by yeah what to me seems like nothing yeah yeah but truly um to to the extent that you know entire towns are like we gotta we gotta stop these skateboard nudes (laughs) (laughs) signs everywhere i mean almost anywhere that i run walk like move around Mm -hmm. they have signs that say no skateboarding and it's just it's such a random i've seen um videos that sam's watched where it's skateboarders at a location and people will get so bothered that they'll stand in the way to stop someone from doing something and the arguments are fascinating and you know now with like the admin of social media and YouTube and everything um skateboarders have gotten smart enough to just like videotape these interactions Mm -hmm. so that they can share them along with the other footage and it's so interesting people being like but I care about your safety like I'm trying to protect you and the skateboarder's like okay well stop that (laughs) didn't ask you to do that lady stop there (laughs) I I know what I'm doing like I am I'm a professional skateboarder I'm a professional athlete like anyone else like I understand there's a risk I sign off on that risk I'm telling you right now I'm okay with that risk so you have no liability um you should feel no guilt and they just they keep coming back to and it's so obviously a control issue that that's all they can say yeah that would be like like you know like I've done circus stuff like aerial things it's very dangerous like it's like you're always <laughs> you're always risking yeah. something by being up in the air right like right. what if someone came up to me while I was like on a hoop or a silk and was like excuse me like you could fall no one no <laughs> one ever came up to me during any sporting event where I was cheerleading being <laughs> thrown in the air yes. one time I was dropped my bases didn't catch me I fell straight through their arms and hit the basketball floor and it was loud and no you know what I mean it's like everyone yeah. accepted that is fine but yeah, yeah skateboarding yeah. no all I mean all athletes on. all athletes can get hurt in really ugly ways but we're just okay with it in certain contexts some of it's societally accepted some of it's not and then people feel the need to yeah. step in to enforce like, that how many people in this country fucking love football and watch that all the time and people <laughs> get horrendously know. injured long term mm-hmm. long term proven and that's just that's all cake and gravy and yeah. you see someone it, like fucking flipping an an ollie or whatever the fuck <laughs> on nice, a curb. That was good. Thank you. <laughs> flipping an ollie. <laughs> I mean, I don't think you flip an ollie, but you said it with such confidence that I think you should just roll see? with it. That's my strength. Grinding, grinding's a Gr- skateboarding thing. Grinding. Yeah. You grind uh, I think you do grind on an ollie. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm like barely barely more informed than you guys. Um <laughs> 
but yeah, like, I mean, it all comes back to like all these examples we just gave is that each of those activities has different preconceived notions, different ideas, a different culture surrounding it. And skateboarding yeah. has a culture that people feel is dangerous, is counterculture, is a lot of times attracting people and activities that they don't want to attract to their community. So it's, mm -hmm. yeah, it's all um, bias. Like it's fully based on bias. Whereas football, on the other hand, well, that's just a great American sport. Tom Brady. You heard of Tom Brady? No, he's a weird no. Trump dude. <laughs> I know. Of course. I knew, I knew there was something I didn't trust about yeah. him. Oh, uh, yeah, that's like, it. People have forgotten that. And it's like, mm. don't forget. Um, don't forget. Let's, let's take a quick break and come back and we'll talk about the history of hostile architecture. History. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I love it though. I love the length. Very nymphy. I, know, I, I feel I got mermaid vibes going on. Mm -hmm. Wintery mermaid. We're back. Hey. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> We're talking about hostile architecture. We have lots of thoughts and feelings. And some history. Here's some history for you. Because, <laughs> you know. It's good. History is good for you. Yeah. <laughs> it's what we do here sometimes. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. History yeah. is part of it. We try. <laughs> we try. <laughs> so there isn't a clear, you know, historical trajectory of hostile design as it's popped up in many urban areas throughout modern history. Also, going back to earlier in this episode, there is a crossover between, I think, what we think of as hostile architecture and more classic examples of like Ginny, you pointed out, you think of things like, you know, moats as like defensive architecture. Right. It's true. Like those are examples of defensive architecture. And so there is a connection in this like lineage, but I obviously don't consider them to be the same thing. No, no. Um, yeah. So so yeah, there, you know, if you if you wanted, I think you can trace the history of hostile architecture all the way back to, you know, medieval castles if you wanted. To. Sure. You can go there. You can go there. The moat the moat reminds me more of like like the gate around the property. Like that that is like yes. the modern day moat. Yeah. Yes. And definitely. I I can say that it is it it is pretty ideological because I my parents currently live in a house that is gated. But reluctantly, like they didn't want it. They just liked this house. It was not mm -hmm. something that they needed as part of the deal or ever wanted. So it's interesting that it I'm sorry, but all this stuff to me at least feels very um, deep. <laughs> A lot of the 
meaning behind this thought behind it is a lot deeper than just design yeah 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 yeah, no definitely it all of it is intentional and it is expressing yes I think some deep deep ideology deep thoughts about human beings (laughs) like Mm -hmm. deep thoughts about yourself and your own space and the control you need to have over it for sure um no I totally I totally agree so one early example of hostile architecture are 19th century urine deflectors. <laughs> <laughs> so this is basically, I mean, from what I understand, it's basically like in corners and stuff where people would pee, um, sure. putting some kind of a, you know, filling so it wrap to fuck with them. <laughs> yeah. Some, some like, sometimes it's like a stone. Sometimes it's just something that it will like, deflect back right right (laughs) right so it's kind of use all the immature language i got you splash (laughs) it'll it'll splish splashy um Mm -hmm. that is one example uh this one is pretty fucked up robert moses the quote master builder of 20th century new york city famously Mm. crossed his roads on long island with low stonework bridges that buses could not pass under. This prevented poor, predominantly Black Americans from visiting the beach retreats enjoyed by wealthier car-owning New Yorkers. Mm. Ugh. That's so, I mean, so fucked very up. ugly and not surprising. Fucked up. Um, yeah. In America around 1960, we see the development of Quote, the crime prevention through environmental design agenda. Architect Oscar Newman created the concept of defensible space, developed further by criminologist C. Ray Jeffrey, who coined the term CPTED and the agenda aims to prevent crime or protect property through three strategies, natural surveillance, natural access control, and territorial enforcement. So, you know, just policing public spaces, policing the environment, very clearly laid out there. They're not hiding anything. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's what this was doing, is is policing these spaces. Yeah. I think Europe Opinions on this topic probably are going to intersect with how you feel about policing at large in a lot of ways, right? And mm-hmm. policing mm-hmm. culture and how how you think that plays into society. So critics of hostile architecture argue that hostile architecture is kind of so insidious because it makes it impossible to like fight against. It makes contrarianism impossible because like you can't, you can't plead your case to a public bench, right? Like, yeah, just there. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it just is. You can try, but it's probably wasted energy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and this actually brings me to the meme I posted on Instagram that inspired this episode, mm-hmm. um, which is really just like an infographic in a lot of ways, infographic slash meme. But it explains how on a lot of these benches, it's actually pretty easy to remove the middle bar and um, that you can do so with like an Allen wrench. And I feel like that is a, a pretty active form of contrarianism. Mm-hmm. So definitely. You know, 
some people have figured out a way <laughs> to, yeah. to fight the public yeah. bench for sure. The um, skateboarding yeah. community I know has a lot of techniques that they've gathered to counteract oh, some I'm of this sure. stuff. I'm so sure. the hostile architecture world picked a worthy adversary in <laughs> the skateboarding world because they are ready to go. <laughs> There's like people like break shit off. We just need to recruit the skateboarders to go after all hostile architecture, not just the ones directed at them. And mm. then we'll have our own little army ready <laughs> to counter counteract. So this basically leads to the question of whether public spaces are actually public anymore at this point. Mm -hmm. If the architecture is being supported and sometimes it's even being commissioned and funded by private companies, then what we have is a commercial space at that point, right? If if the public space is being that, uh, that affected commercially, it's a commercial space. And the phrase pseudo public space has also been used to describe spaces that use devices such as hostile architecture to actively enforce social divisions because you're pretending to be a public space, but you're not actually for the whole public. Right. Yep. Happens a lot. Enforcing social divisions. It's a bad America does best. It's no good. (laughs) That's pretty much what I have on popular versions of hostile architecture, urban hostile architecture, and the history of it. Yeah. Pop, host, arc. (laughs) Oh, dang. Yeah. Pop, host, arc. Oof. I like it. I mean, I don't like it, but I liked that. Let's actually throw in another quick break because we got to do that. Let's throw it in there. Let's just fucking dunk it <laughs> through that basket. Athletes at Art History Base. Sports, 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 <laughs> sports. We're back talking about hostile architecture. Ginny, you have some interesting examples of creative artistic responses to this issue. Yeah. 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 I was interested in sort of the different receptions of hostile architecture, particularly people who find it to be what it is in being hostile. And Obviously, people who are homeless really detest and feel personally attacked by hostile architecture. But it's also really interesting that hostile architecture often impacts all kinds of city residents and the ways that public spaces are presented and made completely uncomfortable for people where it's like, you know, like in San Francisco, where I live, there's a tremendous amount of homelessness in the Bay Area at large, especially in San Francisco and Oakland. And so you notice it quite a bit. And I was reading about how 
cities have laws in place where particular buildings that are built, if they want to expand like how high their towers go, they are mandated to have public spaces accessible. It could be like a rooftop garden or like a little courtyard or something like that that has to be for the public. And that's the way that they are given the rights to expand like their upward momentum essentially but i was reading about how so many of these spaces do not follow those ordinances where they don't have the proper signage to be like hey this is a public space like come and enjoy it like you would have to like know someone who knows or like read some obscure city blog intentionally secretive Exactly. And then on top of that, they also still do things like where they'll have spikes or they'll remove benches. They are allowed to put like the dividers in benches, but I was reading about fucking Trump. <laughs> Still, cup- aren't we done with him? <laughs> I know. I thought I was. <laughs> I can't stop. Um, <laughs> but in his Trump Tower in New York, there's a public atrium, and it is required to have a bench, which they removed and replaced with a kiosk to sell Trump shit. And I was like, you know. Can you get like a copy of the art of the deal or something? Oh, yeah. Like- <laughs> That's all they sell. That's all they sell is just signed copies of the art of the deal. I just wanted to sit down, man. Well, no. Get well, real. You can have this signed copy for $35, but that's that's it. Sorry. Get real. Uh, but um, what's what has been cool to see is different artists, designers, and architects' response to hostile architecture. And the real, real problem of homelessness in cities across the country, across the world, in that homelessness is very much real. And I I think especially as we're recording this now, I mean, speaking specifically to the Bay Area, homelessness has increased, you know, growing up here, I didn't see the tremendous amount of like homeless encampments that have been steadily increasing in the Bay Area over the last five years. And I think us going through this whole pandemic bullshit even more people are homeless than there were before. So I feel that we might even see an uptick in hostile architecture once businesses are open more as usual, but the economy is still in the shits and there are more people who are without housing. So I think it's just a problem that continues to be ever present in our societies, especially urban ones. But I was really intrigued by different people's kind of responses to this. And so I found um, from 2008, an artist named Fabian Brunzig made a satirical art installation called Pay and Sit, the Private Bench. And so (laughs) this was a bench that had metal spikes 
in the bench that only lowered back down once you fed coins into it. And there's like a little video linked on his artist page, but it shows this like, you know, like generic business guy with his briefcase and he puts some coins in and then the little spikes go like, (laughs) you know, under the surface, he sits down, he's like reading the paper and then it beeps. <laughs> the spikes are about to come back up. And so like it's all very like tongue in cheek, but it's still it's highly critical, obviously also. I think that concept is was basically suggested by Ron Swanson in an episode of Parks and Rec where he talks about how he wants all parks to be privatized. Oh. He does like he's like I want the parks to be owned by Chuck E. Cheese. Dropping another token, take a walk. Dropping a token, look at a duck. very you know very libertarian viewpoint for sure which um, yeah ron swanson is the tongue-in-cheek joke about that stuff exactly exactly no totally and what's interesting is that other cities actually implemented this same thing but like did it seriously out in parks and outside of government buildings where you had to pay to sit on a surface before that surface became can you imagine physically seeing, aggressive can you imagine seeing that and being like that's a great idea <laughs> can you imagine I, it, it's it blows my mind and, and it's that whole it's that whole idea of like monetizing things that are just like basic fundamental human rights where it's like you shouldn't have to fucking pay to drink water you shouldn't have to fucking pay to use a restroom but more and more cities now have those public restrooms that you do have to pay to use um so you also you shouldn't have to pay to live in a home either like you shouldn't have to pay to have shelter like you shouldn't mm. have to pay to eat food like yeah like you really Ideally, the maslow's needs the all the lower parts you know should, should just be included be taken <laughs> here yeah, yeah exactly it shouldn't yeah. be it shouldn't be an issue like but but that doesn't work that doesn't work under capitalism mm. and so yeah. yeah it doesn't surprise me that capitalism leads to paying to sit on a bench like that that tracks that tracks (laughs) where else are we going (laughs) right right and like one of the countries that implemented the pay to sit on a bench or you'll get fucking spiked (laughs) china hello china Hmm. you're a communist country (laughs) you're supposed to be above at least this (laughs) come on (laughs) do you remember that do you remember that Ah. should be called like yeah whatever you like pay or else you get fucking spiked like that yeah. they, they should turn it into like this like campy horror vibe right because that's pay the only or, situation or shall be sense. impaled <laughs> yeah. pay or thee shall be impaled exactly turn it into like a horror attraction then yeah. maybe maybe this is like vlad the impaler's bench <laughs> give him your coinage yeah yeah but it's it's fucking nuts it's fucking nuts but there have been a seemingly growing number of nonprofits, architecture and design firms that are consciously trying to design things within cities to kind of 
combat the hostile architecture that's going on. So I just wanted to talk about a few of them. I'm really interested in finding more. So side note, if anyone knows of other ones or more contemporary ones, because a lot of these are from like more like 2010, 2008-ish range. Rain City Housing, which is a nonprofit group in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, installed public benches in the city with the modification that they could convert into shelters. So like they, it's kind of like a sandwich board where it would say like on one side, like you find shelter here and then you could flip it up and it had like holders so that you could sleep on a bench with coverage to keep you safe from like the rain and mist and and bird shit bird poop you know (laughs) um (laughs) but this was it was just like a project that they did so it wasn't a permanent thing but it apparently was successful in terms of just making things that were more friendly and more hospitable to people who are sleeping outdoors and in a lot of the research I was doing for this what came up fairly often was the fact that yes, cities have homeless shelters, but it's often hard to get into them. And a lot of times people who are homeless feel safer being outside on their own as opposed to being in a shelter. So the reality is many people, many, many people in cities all over the world feel more comfortable and that is their reality that they're going to sleep outside. So creating infrastructure, creating things within cities to make that even just to make that more accessible and comfortable, I think. And it's not hard to do. Like how hard is it to Mm -hmm. like make like a latch on a bench that like covers someone and to not have like a divider to where like you can only sleep on that bench if you're like curled in a fetal position and your neck is at like 45 degree angle. Mm -hmm. It's not hard. Um, Canada. I love, I love that it was Canada who was like, we'll make it nice. Right. (laughs) Vancouver is a cool city. I recommend going. (laughs) It's a good time. Uh, And it's beautiful. But Another one that I came across is from a design firm called Yanko Design, and their project is called Homeless Haven. And their text for it is, by day, the homeless haven is like any regular park bench, and by night, it can transform into a temporary shelter. Designed like an expanding accordion, the bench simply elevates and extends into a cozy shelter, giving refuge from the elephants from the elements the elephants is what i i mean refuge from the elephants too (laughs) yeah they're graceful creatures but you never know you never um (laughs) can you imagine being woken up by like just a pissed off elephant like what a way to re regain consciousness i i can't imagine i don't know what i would do I would just, I I would just be like, this is how it ends. (laughs) This is how I'll go. Fair enough. (laughs) I don't know that I'd be mad if an elephant took me out. I love elephants. If it's going to be any wild animal, like. (laughs) Yeah. They're quite majestic. Yeah. 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 Um, But I like the design for this a lot. Like it's, it's very clever. It's very multi-purpose. 
you know, like, why not? Like, why not? What is the harm? What is the harm? Like (laughs) someone stays in it like through the next day and you can't sit on a fucking bench in a park, like sit on the grass, sit on another bench. Like just all these things are so, to me, so common sense. And yet a lot of these that I've been researching, they're all like proposal ideas or like temporary projects, Mm -hmm. but none of them seemingly that I've found are permanent and it's like people are are in it to like a certain extent where they're like oh wow this is a great idea like yeah like this is so humanitarian like cool 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 but that next step to like make it permanent make it like a common practice in cities we just seem incapable of doing the bureaucracy gets in the way and it's like to be fair bureaucracy is created to be a pain in the ass like it is created to make things very fucking difficult so like I understand that and I I can see why that would get in the way of someone like actually fully bringing this to fruition because I could imagine it probably gets to be complicated probably gets to be an expensive process and so you know it comes back to our government it comes back to our Mm -hmm. government making things very very difficult um to change and I, I love this and I love these examples because what you come up against when you have very socialist ideals or, you know, left-leaning ideology, you, you get a lot of people pushing back like, like, well, like, like, what are we going to do then? Like what, you know, like a lot of, a lot of pushback in terms of like, well, this just like is the way it is. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be a block that a lot of people have that like, oh, like you can imagine new things. Like you can imagine new realities. Like we can create new things. There's this really cool thing called creativity and we all have it. (laughs) Yes. And like, these are great examples of that at play. Are any of them the long-term solution? I don't know, but like they could, they could be some form of solution. Like, and that's, that's how you do it. Like that's how you change things radically as you start thinking in new generative ways in which people are taken care of and creating new ways of doing that. And I think those are fantastic examples of not only solving the hostile architecture problem, but then creating something better than like just taking away the problem. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, exactly. And like most of these don't present themselves like uh, this next one, the last one that I was going to talk about, um, Homes for the Homeless, which is designed by an architect in the UK, James Furzer. And it's even presented as like, this is not a solution for homelessness. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, an idea, a proposal to make people who are homeless feel like they have more resources that are safe when they are sleeping outside. And this one is like, he designed these pods that are very small on the inside and designed with no toilet facilities. They are meant to be built quickly from inexpensive materials and bolted onto existing buildings by way of simple steel frames. So like by putting them on existing buildings, that's less infrastructure, that's less building that actually needs to happen because you're just using the Mm -hmm. supports 
of an already built building. Mm -hmm. And like, you look at the images of them, it's like, yeah, like it's all these like little windows to like keep it warm and bring the sun in a little bed, a little shelf, like it looks like cozy and doable for like a night or a few nights. And I mean, it's unfortunate that the discussion about finding more housing for homeless people is like, oh, like, it's just like a, you know, a temporary thing, like here, here are some more resources for them. Because like, ideally, you know, we can find more concrete ways to reduce homelessness, but we're not there yet. And like, these are the ideas being proposed. And even those, like, even though they get accolades and like attention and article reviews and all that, like, they're still not being implemented. You know, like, that's unfortunate. Is that the the possibility is there? We're there. The ideas are, they exist. Yeah. Um, I think it is important to touch on the fact that, like, just since we're talking about it, not everyone who's homeless is homeless by like some people are homeless by choice. So it isn't necessarily something that is ever going to be fully solvable because there are people who genuinely choose the lifestyle of being homeless, but that doesn't negate that there's a whole spectrum of existence in homelessness where there are a lot of people who do want a way out of it and it's just a circumstance and, um, So it's it's all of it, but but things like this could be something implemented that could help people who are temporarily homeless, but it could also be something for people who just genuinely live that lifestyle. And that's not to say I think people's fear go to the place of like, oh, people are just going to, you know, move into this spot and never leave and just like be uh like what are the words that people use like mooch off of or whatever the fears start to creep in mm-hmm. but i mean just i don't know i think that that's just think about your own self and like yeah. how you like to live like every right. person even if it's in a different way different capacity most of us we just want to be comfortable we want to feel safe and yeah and it's that it, simple it it really is it really is in cities should be should do everything they can to be more safe and more comfortable for every person that inhabits them. Because, like, mm-hmm. what's the point if you're yeah. not? Like, what's the yeah. like? What's the fucking point? Like that—that right. that is the purpose. Like, it's supposed right. to be a community. Like, yeah, people are supposed to be taken care of. And yeah, and I, I agree, Nat. I think what both you said is pointing to the bigger overarching thing, which is that societally we look down upon homelessness we look down upon people who are homeless Mm -hmm. like it's it's very it's very against the american ethos yeah so Mm -hmm. we're ideologically a lot of dehumanization of homeless populations a lot of it so it's really i think simple for people to just shrug off all these potential things that we can do to make life more comfortable for people who are homeless, you know? Yeah. And like, there's so many varying degrees of it too, because there are people who have been homeless and living on the streets for years and years and years. And there are also people who do it temporarily or even like for a night. Like I can, I can like relate to that. I can like 
I, I know not that having feeling. a way to get back to where you're supposed yeah, to say and I know having that, to yes. start where you're like, where, where, where can I go? Like, mm-hmm. where do I go to where mm-hmm. I can feel safe and just like get through the fucking night? And yeah. I just think that like, if you can't even get to that point of empathy and just like being able to understand like what one night or like multiple nights or multiple weeks, depending on like a whole range of different shit that can happen to your life to like upend it. How could, I don't know, like yeah. not, not being yeah. able to empathize with that. I'm just like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> or, or just having the understanding to realize that, yeah, the empathy is a huge component because so much of it, so much of understanding and being respectful to different lifestyles just involves being empathetic. But mm-hmm. on top of that, also understanding that you only have a capacity, a certain capacity to be empathetic. So beyond that, you can still be understanding. You can still let go of the need to fully know what that feels like or mm-hmm. fully relate and still let someone live their life and be supportive of it. You don't have to feel triggered. You don't have to feel upset just because you don't understand. You can do your best. And I've always been really upset by the intense animosity that some people feel towards the homeless population because it just doesn't make sense to me. I just don't understand why someone's either lack of having what you have or disinterest in having what you have makes you so upset. And upset to the point that not only do you not wish them well, that you like meaning like intentionally wish them harm and dehumanize them. And it's just it's such a waste of energy. And at minimum, if you don't know what that feels like and you have no concept, then just be grateful and just, you know, act from that place. At least it just. I don't know. It's a it's yeah, 100 percent. It's an extension of classism. It's Mm -hmm. it's 100 percent an extension of classism. Um, The American ideology doesn't like poor people like (laughs) like unless that poor person picks themselves up by their bootstraps and becomes a billionaire. Then we love them. Then we want to make movies about them. Then they're all we want to talk about. Yeah. But outside of that. Yeah, we don't story. like to see it. We like to just push it into the corners, or which they only exist know. in relation to wealth. You know, like yeah. that. Yeah. That is that is what poverty, what the poor population is for. For a lot of Americans, is just to be the contrast to yeah. opulence. In hostile architecture, I think is makes that that already sort of mental border that we have that much more visually evident where it's Mm -hmm. just like we know this is a problem but we don't want to see that problem here so we're just going to kick it down the road to somewhere else to someone else for them to kick it down the road etc etc and you know like to like I like I get it you know like in living in San Francisco and like pre-COVID like commuting to work and like getting off at BART stations and like you know I have my headphones in and I've had a long day and I just want to get home and I don't want to like have someone like be like hey bitch like you looking at me like blah blah you know like and that shit happens that shit happens all the time so like I 
I can understand on a certain level, like just wanting to like get it like out of sight, uh, but it also just undercuts like the full nuance of being homeless in America, being homeless in the world at large is where like, it's, it's not a generalization. Like there are so many varying degrees of homelessness and there are so many different stories and there are so many different experiences and it's already a marginalized group and it's already a group of people that feel othered by the rest of society. And so to exacerbate that through the form of architectural design just seems so brutal Mm -hmm. and cruel and unnecessary. And to add to like that example you just gave too of like, you know, speaking to how we have certain um, ways of, of viewing the homeless population or like the issue of homelessness, like, yes, that shit totally does happen where someone who may be homeless, like yell some shit at you on the street. But yeah. why is that different from a just drunk asshole yeah. yelling at you in a bar? Like, yeah, I've had like, guys in money. nice Lexuses yelling <laughs> shit at me, you know, exactly. like, like I've been yelled at by a lot of different kinds of people. <laughs> Like, and it is something that happens and, but like, that is not a reason to, yeah, justify having a bias towards Mm -hmm. an entire group of people, class of people, because you've had an experience like that. Cause it's easy to take those, those situations and turn them into an argument, you know, against Mm -hmm. that lifestyle or just those people who are experiencing something. And it's unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. Oh, one last alternative to hostile architecture that I wanted to bring up really quickly. Sarah Ross in the U.S. came up with the Arca suit. (laughs) which is an all-in-one outfit with tactically placed (laughs) cushions to turn even the most unpleasant design into a comfortable resting place. Quote, it's supposed to be ridiculous and funny and point to the ridiculousness of aggressive architecture, says Ross. These are laughable design solutions to actual real problems that have nothing to do with architecture and everything to do with social safety, with the social safety net. Hostile architecture aside, that's like, that's like my ideal situation right. <laughs> to just be like in, like to be a human couch like that. Yeah. <laughs> like my cozy. You can dream. be comfortable everywhere. <laughs> Anywhere. Like anytime. going back to the beginning of the episode, that story I told you about, like going to my art history classes with my, my hot cocoa, like yes. imagine also being like a human cushion, the coziest so thing. Ideal. Yeah. I love that. I do too. And I I do it it gives me peace of mind and hope and kind of creative zhuzh to see that people are trying to come up with alternatives. And some of them are kind of tongue in cheek, like that one and like the, you know, put some coins in this bench and like you won't get a spike up your butt, you know. <laughs> uh, and some more seriously where it's like, you know, people are aware of it and 
in a sort of odd way because the last year has been so grim and because homelessness has inevitably increased in numbers because of the pandemic. I would love to see, and I would hope to see that more people are coming up with different design ideas to help homeless people and to make homeless people feel like they have more options and more safe options just just to like rest. Mm-hmm. You know, we all need rest. We all need comfort and rest mm-hmm. and that shouldn't be denied to anyone ever. Ever. It really shouldn't. Yeah. I wanted to wrap things up with a quote that I really love that I, I think- love quotes. I love I love a good quote. <laughs> <I love them. laughs> and this one I think really wraps up so much of what we've been saying this episode. And it's by sociologist Robert Park, who wrote, In making the city we make ourselves, one might wonder what collective self-conception has produced a city covered in metal spikes, illuminated by blue lights, buzzing with high frequencies, paranoid, anxious, and hostile by design. Mm. Oof. Yeah. Like we, yeah, we create our reality. We create our communities. They are a reflection of what we value. Yep. That simple. It, it really is. And especially like looking at kind of our concept of the city where it's like, oh, you know, you live in a city and there's like lots of things to do and that's somewhat glamorous. But then on the flip side, like, the kind of perceived or conveyed notion of like, you live in a city, there's a certain element of danger. And that's when like, we have that kind of reaction to the city where it's like, oh, like the suburbs, the country, like that's Mm -hmm. where you're safe. That's where like, you don't need this kind of infrastructure, like hostile architecture to protect you. I mean, I, I feel like our notion of the city is very much like a mythology that we've kind of created um, around being like on edge and dangerous and Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it can get romanticized, but. And then that is reflected back to us, you know, like our ideas and and what we think like that is what is created. That is what we see. That is what's reflected back. So then it does become the reality. The more and more, the more and more you, buy into any mythology the more and more mm-hmm. it becomes a reality so mm-hmm. um i think part of it is choosing what mythology you want to right <laughs> you want to live in <laughs> like yeah um yep. and choose because wisely yeah choose wisely because if you think everything is um out to get you and is dangerous and you know that you need to control your surroundings and dehumanize others to be safe well your reality will probably reflect that back to you in ways like you're always going to find things to be afraid of like Mm -hmm. the world's a big Mm -hmm. place you know yeah um (laughs) me and my anxiety have proven that right if you're afraid of everything you will always be afraid (laughs) same like (laughs) like yeah 100 percent. but when you are more open to the 
beautiful interconnectedness of reality and all of its beings and all of the, you know, wildness that occurs in a more loving and understanding way, you're probably going to see a lot more beauty. Like, yeah, just saying, (laughs) just saying, just saying. Yeah. Yeah. Hostile architecture. (sighs) And like, if you weren't already aware, you will see it a lot. Like Mm -hmm. it's one of those things where it's this sort of subtle, pervasive thing Mm -hmm. where, especially like if you live in a city and you're commuting and, and all that, like certain things just become normalized to you where it's like, oh, like weird little metal dividers on like a concrete bench or like spikes in like a doorway on the floor. And like, you might not think that much about them because you don't have to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But once that doesn't affect me or my reality. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But once you realize what it is and recognize it for what it is you'll notice it a lot more and it is very present in many of our cities from like big cities like new york to smaller places like sacramento like it's it's around it's really really around and it's disturbing it is. I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely here in certain forms too. You know, mm-hmm. South Dakota, man. Like it's yeah, like it's places. It's it's mm-hmm. in the places. <laughs> it's in the places. It's here. <laughs> All the places. It's here. Yeah. Should we wrap up with a with a listener mail? Yes, let's. Okay, let's this bring is it back a fun up. one. This comes to us from Molly. And it's in response to our recent hot takes drunk history episode. <laughs> Which was fun. <laughs> yeah. I feel like after the most recent episode, Hot Takes Drunk History, I have a whole new appreciation and love for the work y'all do. <laughs> Which I love. We've actually got a couple emails like this. And I love mm-hmm. that now that people understand the connection <laughs> to drunk history, they like, like us like, more. <laughs> like us more. Like. But Anyways, back in 2014, my roommate and I ran a gallery out of our apartment here in Cincinnati. There were a few DIY spaces in our neighborhood, and we had a huge hallway, so we decided to invite various artists to come and transform the space. At some point, my roommate and some friends and I were watching the premiere season of Drunk History and decided, similarly to you ladies, that there needed to be an art component. We didn't have anything planned for November in our schedule, so we decided to create a potluck drunk art history extravaganza. I think in the original press release Facebook event description, we said something like, it's a potluck, it's a lecture, it's a cornucopia (laughs) of seasonal delights inspired (laughs) by the wildly popular program Drunk History. I, I mean, I'd be there in a second that's yeah. <laughs> it was an incredible evening of friends strangers and faux art lectures we had people select their art history topic at random when they arrived for the evening we had created tiny slide images of the artwork with the title and the artist's name so they could do some quick research they were encouraged to imbibe so much booze food and pie and at a certain point we began the event using a projector we had the images of various art up on the wall and the person assigned that particular piece had to get up and tell us about it most attendees were also artists creatives of some kind or had basic knowledge of art but others had no idea and just 
just made up their presentation. <laughs> As an internal <laughs> librarian, I made sure we had some art history textbooks on hand in case someone wanted a bit more truth to their talk. I guess this make it up as you go is where we differ from the original drunk history, but it also made it extremely entertaining as audience members would heckle and correct pres presenters. We tried to do a second installment of this event, but it didn't quite capture the magic of the original. Really looking forward to the day when hosting these kinds of events is possible again. I attached a couple of images from the event to highlight the variety of work we chose. Anyway, thank you so much for making art history accessible and encouraging others to be curious and excited about research. And then Molly added some photos, which are so fun. Mm -hmm. Like they really did... Yeah, just like stand up by a projector and and gave their presentation. I'll check with Molly, but if it's okay with her, I'll throw them up on this video. Um, yeah. But yeah, they're really fun. We've got like some Judy Chicago. We've we've Classic. got um, we got cave art like uh, Rothko, yep. Damien Hurst. <laughs> um, but this seems super fun. I think it'd be really fun for us to host an event like this at some point. Yeah. I think it'd be a good time. I would very much love to do this. Art history, babes, drunk art history night. Mm-hmm. Cha. Cha. But Cha. Don't embarrass myself for your entertainment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you do it for the show regularly, right? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> On the regular. But thank you for writing in, Molly, and thank you for sending the images along. Very fun. Very fun story. We're, we're glad you enjoyed the episode. And yeah, thank you all so much for listening. If you have any thoughts on any of the things we talk about on the show, but this topic in particular, because I think there is plenty to be discussed. For sure. Please email us at arthistorybabes at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts, ideas. You can also find us at our Patreon. That's probably the best place to find us. Patreon.com slash Art History Babes. And we're getting ready to start our second round of book club. So yes. get in on it. Get in on the book club. It's a great way to support the creation of this content so we can keep making podcasts and videos. Um, but also it's really fun because we get to read together and hang out on Zoom and talk about books. So books. that's cool. It's real cool. It's pretty cool. Patreon.com slash Art History Babes. Find us on Instagram, Art History Babes Podcast. We're on TikTok at Art History Babes. And we have a book. Buy our book. Uh, we have merchandise. Buy our merchandise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's it. I think I hit all the bullets. You hit you hit it all. And uh, we appreciate you. We appreciate you all. We do. Truly. Thank you, Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Deeply. We'll talk to you again soon. You know we will. <laughs> you know we can't shut up. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>
very surreal, very oh. absurdist. I'm here. I am not a cat. I oh, make, I'm going like, to make little... that into a meme. That's good. See? <laughs> make it into a meme. I want to do like a little watercolor with that where I like write, I'm mm. here. I'm not a cat in some nice cursive. 